Amen. Father, we bless our college students. We ask that your hand would be on them, that you would multiply the work that you've begun this week or continued this week, and it would stretch on into the future at Baylor, at TSTC, at MCC. God, would you have your way on our college campuses? Would you embolden, strengthen, unify our college students? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Everybody said? Amen and amen. Well, good morning. You made it to the 9 o'clock service. Way to go. Pat yourself on the back. Did anybody feel that, that extra hour, the, that loss of the hour we did in our house? Uh, but here we are by the grace of God. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, if you're new here to Antioch, my name is Mick Murray. I'm the equipping pastor here. And one of my joys as the equipping pastor is to uh, help facilitate our Life University classes. Those are periodic courses that we offer on Monday nights throughout the year. And I want to plug a course that we're going to have, a standalone course coming up uh, middle and latter half of April into May called Gender and the Bible. And there's a, a lot of confusion in our culture today uh, around gender, what it means to be male and female. It can be a sensitive top topic for many people. Uh, but we want to look at gender from a biblical viewpoint while also treating some of the underlying assumptions that are dominating the conversation and culture today. It's questions like, is gender a fixed reality or an internal sense of identity that can change? Uh, can I be born in the wrong body? What about pronoun use You know, at school, at work? or loved ones? Uh, what do I do if my child just came out as transgender, what are, or if I'm dealing with gender dysphoria? Uh, does the Bible and ancient text even deal with these modern issues? Does it speak to them in a relevant way? And so on. So if you're interested in that, there's a QR code that you can square up in your phone. And it's for anybody. Um, as the body of Christ, we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus to this cultural moment in, in our hour. And so we want to be equipped uh, to do so. So you can check that out at that QR code. The details are up there on the screen. All right. Well, we are in a series called Union, Communion, and Partnership and have been so uh, since the beginning, uh, end of January, going through John chapter 17, kind of under the banner word of unity for our church this year. And this is Jesus's prayer for uh, unity, among other things. Uh, as we talked about last week when we looked at verses 1 through 8, this is also a prayer where we get a window into Jesus's soul right at the end of his life as he's about to go to the cross. And, you know, one of the things that's been on my heart in preparation for this uh, series, these three weeks in particular, as we're looking at John chapter 17, is how do we participate in the mission of God? Obviously, there was a very overt expression of that at Awaken this week down in Edinburgh. But for the rest of us, for, for, all, for most of us who live and work here in Waco, who have jobs, who are raising kids, who are empty nesters, how do we participate in the mission of God? We send out missionaries all over the world. Uh, we do incredible work through Unbound. I was talking to Kevin Johnson before, uh, before this service and our work with Acts of Mercy that's going on in Turkey and Syria and other places. And those are fantastic, and, and many of us will be called to participate in those expressions of mission. But how do the rest of us in the, the mundane uh, corners and crevices of our lives, uh, does what we do matter? It, is it part of God's mission? 
you know, Steph and I uh, have my wife of 17 years, uh, who's in Austin this morning, uh, but she, yes, she deserves the applause. She is the better half of this equation. Um, you know, we've been part of this church now for 20 years, and we've been up here on the carpet and cried our eyes out at the world mandates and in response to what God's doing. And we've moved our family uh, across the country a couple times to church plant, be a part of starting churches. We've also been a part of closing both of those churches. And most recently, six years ago, we shut down a church in Lawrence, Kansas, and don't have time this morning to share the whole process, but it was one of the most difficult seasons of our lives. And I have found, I, I would have thought in my 20s that my life would take this kind of ever-expanding curvature, you know, that uh, from Waco to the nations. And we have found that as we've entered our 40s, our lives have gotten narrower and narrower. And after we shut the church down in Kansas and moved back to Waco, that was very, uh, that was, that happened in a very practical sense. But I found even in my, in my soul, the vision that God has given me has gotten narrower and narrower, and that's been counterintuitive. And I've asked the question, Steph and I, over the past six years, are we missing it? Are we missing it by trying to raise godly kids? Are we missing it by participating in the local church? Are we missing it by not going to the nations? And again, many of us will be called in that regard, but what about these kind of everyday, you know, day in and day out, average, ordinary parts of our lives. How does that connect with the mission of God? And as many of you have sat in my office, I have noticed that that question is not just ours. I think a lot of people wonder what purpose do these ordinary parts of my life have in the broader mission of God? And as I mentioned last week, I think Jesus gives us some clues as to the answers to some of these questions in his prayer in John chapter 17. Again, we looked at uh, verses 1 through 8 last week. We're going to look at 9 through 19 today. I know you just sat down, but if you would stand with me uh, for the reading of Scripture. Again, we do this to honor the Word of God. This is verses 9 through 19. You don't need to read along with me. Uh, I'll read it. Jesus prays, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake... I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. If you're new to church and these different things we do, everybody said amen. You're like, I don't know what everybody said. Just welcome. Glad that you're here. We do weird things in church. We're aware of that. 
We're going to break this down verse by verse, uh, looking at verses 9 and 10 first. Jesus says, I am praying for them, speaking of his disciples specifically in, in this verse. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you, speaking to the Father, have given to me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and therefore he equalized himself with the Father. It was comments like that that in part sent him to the cross that he made himself God. He says, and I am glorified in them. And these couple verses are a great review of last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and uh, take a listen to that message. We looked at the first eight verses and these themes, and we didn't have the repetitive, there are repetitive themes in, in the verses we looked at, to, we're going to look at today. But last week, we looked at these repetitive words of give and glory and had you guys repeat those as we read the scripture. And Jesus says over and over uh, to the Father, you've given me these people. I have given them your word and they are giving you glory. And Father, would you glorify me as I've glorified you? And there's this uh, repeated theme of giving glory in the first eight verses. And he repeats that again here. He's saying, I'm praying for these people whom you have given me. And we use the metaphor of a garden. It says Jesus is a gardener. He's saying, Father, you've given me this boundary, this walled garden, and I have tended it. I have sowed it with your word. I have demonstrated what you're like, and therefore I have glorified you. Jesus didn't seek to glorify himself in his humanity. He sought to manifest the Father to those whom the Father had given him. That was his message or the theme in the first eight verses of his prayer that we looked at last week. We talked about that word dominion from Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28, where God had charged Adam and Eve and given them dominion. And we talked about how in the biblical sense, uh, the father illustrates that in chapter two of Genesis, where he puts them in a garden to tend it, to take care of it. That that's the, the concept that was in God's mind when he says, have dominion to subdue the earth. It's as a gardener has dominion over a garden. And we talked about the motives of a gardener, which are to bring about life, beauty, fruitfulness, to bring order out of chaos. And here Jesus is saying, I have exercised that kind of dominion here, Father. I have glorified you. And now they, the disciples, they are starting to glorify me because they are walking in the same way. They're demonstrating the same dominion. They're walking in the same holiness. They're walking in unity. And those are the three words we use to define glory from this prayer. We could talk about glory in a lot of different ways, but these three words, dominion, holiness, and unity. And last week, we looked at dominion specifically. Today, we're going to look at holiness that emerges as a theme in this section of the prayer. And next week, uh, we'll specifically look at unity as what Jesus is praying, not for just the disciples, but for us as disciples of Jesus, that we would manifest the Father's name within our context and that's how we talked about mission last week, that yes, it matters that the small mundane parts of our lives, how we conduct ourselves within the garden that God has stewarded to us, showing his type of dominion, bringing order out of chaos, beauty, fruitfulness, and life. And today, the way we conduct ourselves in the same holiness that the Father uh, embodies. So we summarized Last week, Jesus' mission in this way, that his mission was to give the Father glory. 
by using the authority given to him to speak the Father's word and to live the Father's way among those the Father gave him, his garden, so to speak. But we go on today, verses 11 and 12. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they, the disciples, are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, speaking of Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus is saying here, Father, I have tended to them. I've been the shepherd of the sheep, the gardener of the garden, but I'm about to go away. I have kept them in your name, but what's going to happen once I go away? And by going away, he's about to go to his death. He will die on the cross and then be resurrected from the dead and ascend to the Father. And if you remember back to the previous three chapters, right before chapter 17, Jesus has done a, uh, an exposition, if you will, especially in chapters 14 and 16 on the Holy Spirit. And so he knows it's better for him to go away because when he does, the Spirit will come and live in every disciple. Now you, you don't have to be where Jesus is. If Jesus is in Capernaum, then you have to be in Capernaum to be with God. If Jesus is in Bethany, then you have to be in Bethany. He's saying, actually, it's going to be better that I go away because my spirit will live in you and I'll be with you everywhere that you go. But still here, he's praying, Father, I've kept them in your name. I'm about to go away. Father, please keep them, guard them that none of them is lost. And he mentions, yes, Judas was lost just to fulfill prophecy. But God, may none of them wander from the path. May they be kept in your name. Verse 13, now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Isn't that a wonderful window into Jesus' motives? Did you know that your joy is one of his motives? one of his highest aims. I know that if we went around the room, we would hear just horrible stories of tragedy and trauma and, and chronic depression, anxiety and loneliness and hopelessness. And here Jesus is advocating for your joy. He said in verses two and three of this prayer, I've come to give them life and this is eternal life that they know you, Father, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And we'll talk about this at the end, but we can't say this clearly enough that you will not find life apart from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you're here just checking things out, um, that's, that's our conviction from the scriptures, that's our lived reality, our testimony as followers of Jesus, that you will not find life apart from God in a relationship, a, a real, meaningful, substantive relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And he's saying, this is why I speak what I speak to the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And may the water level of joy rise in our midst. And he goes on, verses 14 through 16. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now remember, part of God's mission for us is to have dominion over the earth. Now that's not subjugation, that's not oppression, 
that is, and again, you go back and listen to the message last week to, to flesh that out a little bit. What that means is that we reflect the Father in every corner of the planet, that we live in such a way that we are like flashing neon signposts, that there's another kingdom at work. And Jesus is praying here that we would be kept in the Father's name. To put it this way, if if salvation was the goal, then when we pray a prayer and commit our lives to Jesus, then we would just just evaporate, go to be with God in heaven. But that doesn't happen. Jesus is saying here, "I I don't pray that you take them out of the world. In fact, I'm praying that you send them into the world because I want them to reflect the Father. I want the whole world to see what you're like, Father. But in order to do that, Father, I'm praying that while they are in the world, they would not be of the world. Okay? Now, here's a kind of a graphical way to, um, to, to depict this. This will kind of follow the biblical narrative arc that in the beginning, heaven and earth were one. There was no distinction. The Father's glory was seen in all of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, through Adam and Eve, through the created order. And again, it was characterized as dominion, as stewardship, not usurpation, but this selfless act of creation uh, and stewardship. It was depicted as holiness, God being as uh, completely set apart and other than and perfect. It was depicted as unity between uh, the Godhead among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, among Adam and Eve, the relationship they had with one another, the relationship they had with the Father. And this was to the glory of God. But then we see the, the fall that happens in Genesis 3, and all of a sudden there's an extraction of heaven from earth. And now you have this contrary culture that emerges among mankind because of sin. You see dominion now not as stewardship, but as oppression. You see not the holiness of God, but the sinfulness of mankind. You see not the unity of the Trinity, but now the disunity that that sin causes, the fracturing of relationships. There's this disunity between man and God. Disunity among uh, Adam and Eve's relationship and then their children. And now it's to the glory of self and not just to the glory of God. Now, to break down holiness and sinfulness a little bit more, because we'll talk about this this morning, we'll put up a chart. There are so many descriptions throughout the Bible of the culture of heaven versus the culture of the world, if you will. It could be called sinfulness and godliness, uh, or it's, it's talked about in terms of like flesh and spirit. There are all these, um, these contrasting lists. This is just one from Colossians 3, 5 through 17. There are many others, but you can see here where Paul is, is exhorting the church, be of the Father's kingdom. Don't be of the world's kingdom, where heaven is characterized with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love and peace and unity, thankfulness, biblical exhortation, encouragement, the singing of hymns and psalm, psalms to one another. But you can see this contrasting kingdom, this, this worldliness. And by this, he's not saying that the earth is bad. This is not like, um, uh, this isn't Gnostic thought where matter is evil. These are just kind of shorthand to describe what sin does, the effect that sin has. Sexual immorality and impurity, passion. And, and by that, he, he meant kind of these unbridled appetites. 
uh, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, outbursts of anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. And again, we could put up many different contrasting lists from the scriptures. But God's intent was to be among mankind, not to have this separation between heaven and earth. And so uh, he called out a family, the family of Abraham, who became the nation of Israel. And Israel was to be this representation of God on the earth, this, this place in the Venn diagram of overlap to where even though God isn't physically present except in some different theophanies through the tabernacle and the temple, there would be this priesthood of believers but we know that there's going to be this tension that Israel feels to go one of two ways. They could go the way of the kingdom or they could go the way of the world. And we find out throughout the rest of the Old Testament that Israel takes on more of the coloration, if you will, of the kingdoms of this world. Now, there were bright spots, and this is a, a gross overgeneralization, but generally they were eventually exiled from their land because they took on more of this dominion as oppression more of the, the characteristics of sinfulness and disunity and the, the glory of their empire, the glory of self. Well, Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels, and he is the opposite. He is in the world, but he is of the Father's kingdom in every conceivable way. And then we come here to John 17, and he's praying now for the disciples, for the church. And the church is going to feel these same tensions that the, that the nation of Israel felt. There would be a temptation to be in the world, but of the world. And he's praying, no, 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 let the church be in the world, a representation, the place of God's dwelling, so that the world can see what God is like, but let them be of your kingdom. And at a macro level, because Jesus prays for it, we know that at the end of time, the church will represent Jesus in the world. But at the level of individuals, at the level of you and I, and of this fellowship, there really is a question mark over our lives. Which kingdom will we be of while we are in this world? And then we see at the end of time, heaven and earth are one again. Uh, the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth on earth. And it's not just a garden anymore, but a garden city and the productivity and the, the culture and the flourishing human society as, as humanity exercises our original mandate to fill the earth with the glory of God. But this is what Jesus is praying here. Father, would they be in the world but not of it? So that Habakkuk 2.14, the prophecy that Habakkuk issued all these years ago, would be fulfilled, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what makes Jesus tick, and this is what he is praying for, for you and me. So before we look at the last several verses here and look at some practical steps forward, turn to somebody. If you've been here, if you're here last week, you know we've been doing this. Just turn to somebody real quick. So far, what's the top takeaway for you? This is your participation moment, so you're not just passively listening to flat, me flap my gums up here. What is your practical takeaway so far, or what is standing out to you? Turn to somebody next to you and share for about one minute, ready, go.
About 10 more seconds. Okay, so in light of that vision of Jesus' desire that we would be in the world but not of it, he prays this in verses 17 through 19. He says, sanctify them in, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, if you pay attention to the language Jesus uses here, uh, in the previous verses we looked at, he's, uses, he's used words like keep and guard. There's kind of this passive sense of God, keep them from sin, keep them from the evil one. That shifts here in these verses to now sanctify them. There's more of an active posture that the believer takes here. He's saying sanctify them as I have consecrated myself. Now that word sanctify uh, is, is a fun uh, churchy word, Bible word that we use that just means to set apart um, it has this sense of like in the Old Testament when they would sanctify things for the temple, they would purify them. They were holy. They were valuable. They represented something that was transcendent. And Jesus is saying here, God set apart the church, set apart the disciples. Would they look differently, smell differently, act differently, sound differently than the world around them? Would they be set apart, cleansed, purified. And in the broader New Testament sense, this idea of sanctification means to be formed into the image of Jesus. Again, he's been praying against our malformation, that we would be kept from the evil one, kept from sin. But holiness is more than just not sinning. Holiness here, according to Jesus, is sanctification. There's this productive process of our lifelong uh, conformation into the image of Jesus. That's what Jesus is praying for here. Again, why? Well, earlier in this prayer, Jesus referred to the Father as Holy Father. God is holy. The Spirit's moniker, the, the Spirit's first name, if you will, is Holy God is holy. He is completely other than. He is distinct in his perfection, in his power, in his transcendence, in his majesty. He is not like us. We are made in his image. There are reflections of glory in us. But God is other than. He is in a, in a completely different ballpark in his holiness. And yet we are called as those made in his image to reflect his holiness into the world. And in choosing to go a different way, in choosing to be more like the world than like him, we diminish his image in the world. An unbelieving world looks at the church and they see um, an institution that looks by and large uh, not a whole lot different from the world around it. And, and that's not entirely true, and that's not meant to be a, a downer. I think that's an invitation to the church to rise up in this hour and to go the way of the Father so that his glory would be seen. And I've shared this before. That this is what keeps me up at night as a follower of Jesus. I know where I um, don't reflect the Father's glory. I know where my life falls short, and it falls short every day. 
And Jonathan, if you'd put that slide back up that kind of shows the uh, heaven and earth T-chart again. You know, if I were just to go down this, the right side of that list, uh, guilty <laughs> on a daily basis. And, and that's where my prayers and, and the prayer of Jesus echoes in my ear, God, sanctify me. Make me holy. Help me to walk in your way. And I'm so thankful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm so thankful that he is more committed to our holiness than our comfort. He is committed to refining us. If we will continue to say yes, what we say, you say in the discipleship school is as long as somebody's willing to fall forward, we'll walk with them all the way to the end. It's not about perfection. This is about process. This is about growth. One more time, Jonathan. Sorry, put that back up there. You know, as I just started reviewing this list uh, for myself, that very first one, sexual immorality, it's a big part of my testimony of God delivering me from an addiction to pornography. But it's ongoing. There are daily temptations. And sad to say, that's still a weakness in the sense that that's a, a prominent temptation for me. When I am tired or insecure or feeling lonely, there, there's just this kind of magnetic pull back in that direction. And so for me, a step towards sanctification over the break was to delete not just the app, but my actual accounts uh, for Facebook and Instagram. That may not be the step you have to take. Um, I, that just, that exposes my weakness that I had to get rid of that as a source of temptation for me. Your steps towards holiness will look different from mine. Outbursts of anger. You know, uh, <laughs> Steph and I shared at the marriage conference just this brief devotional, and uh, we were driving up to the church, and we asked the kids, or we said to the kids, hey, it's mom and dad's desire that we're the same on stage as we are at home. So how, how should you pray for mom and dad this morning? That, that we would be the same on stage as we are at home. And, and all four of them prayed that we would be less angry. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Out of the mouths of infants and babes. But I'm so grateful, again, that this is a process and the grace of God is ongoing. But the call is not to remain in that state of worldliness, but to be sanctified. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul prays this. And this is to begin to answer the question, how? He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Note, notice the preposition there. It's not work for, but work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So whose responsibility is it that I am sanctified? Is it mine or is it God's? And the answer is yes. That, that passage is, is intentionally, cryptically vague. Work out your salvation because it's God who works in you. Well, who is it? Is it me or is it God? Yes. And salvation is a free gift. But sanctification is a partnership. It actually requires something of us but in a mystical way that it's still God who works in us even as we show up to be sanctified. So I'd like to propose a model. This gets super uh, practical and specific, and we don't have time to break it down at length. I, I, um, I debated on whether even to show this because I can't break it down at length, but my wife was like, do it, and so I am. <laughs> so a model of sanctification Jesus is our sanctification. 
John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, this is one way to think about this. This would represent the whole person. If you think of Jesus in Mark chapter 12, where he says, we are to love God with all our heart and soul, mind and strength. You could think of life as heart and soul. You could think of strength as way. You could think of mind as truth. That we are to order our affections and our beliefs and our practices. And you can put that up there, that next slide. That Jesus as the life. You could talk about the right ordering of our affections. What are we holding up as lovely in our lives? What, what do you think about, you know, as you lie down to go to bed? Where is our go-to for life, for joy, for comfort? There was something about Jesus that when he came on the scene and called the disciples that they left everything and followed him. There was something that they had tasted of him that superseded even their vocation, their families, and so on. The right ordering of our affections is important. What are we holding up as beautiful in our lives? Talk about our practices, our habits, our conduct. Um, There are well-worn paths throughout church history and in the scriptures called the spiritual disciplines. If you don't like that word, call them the spiritual practices. But they are ways that we can be formed into the image of Jesus. That would be scripture. That would be prayer, community, simplicity. That would be the Sabbath. That would be community and so on, if I said that twice. Um, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline is a great place to start. Or uh, maybe easier to bite off would be John Mark Comer's Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which is a veiled repackaging of Foster and Celebration of Discipline. But the right ordering of our habits, our practices, the right ordering of our beliefs, what is coming into our minds is shaping us. If your intake of social media is more substantial than your intake of scripture, then don't be surprised when your life looks more like what you see on social media than what you see in the Bible. It's pretty straightforward. I wish it wasn't, but it is. Our intake of that which forms us into the image of Jesus needs to supersede that which malforms us into the image of the world. Now, all this happens in a context. You can, yeah, you can put that back up there. Pain and time. I wish the catalyst in this uh, chemical equation was not pain. Um, but I have found that that is an inescapable reality. You see it in the scriptures, that God uses the crucible of our lives to form the image of Jesus in us over time. I put that up there simply to say this isn't like a one-week run and bummer, it didn't work. This is a lifelong run. This is measured in years and decades and not days and weeks and months. So if you hit the eject button prematurely, you will stunt the growth that God wants to do in your life. My wife has prayed prayers like, God, don't lift this trial until you fully form what you want into us through this trial. And to that, I say, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. But she has caught on to these truths far quicker than I have. And I'm coming around. Yes, God, form me through this difficulty and let it lift in Jesus' name. It happens in the context of relationships. If you try to go your own way as a loner Christian and isolate yourself, you will stunt your formation at best and you will find yourself fully entrenched in the ways of the world at worst. And it happens with a deep dependence on the Holy Spirit. 
This is that mystical component of sanctification where we wake up day by day, walk into meeting by meeting. God, unless you manifest the Father in this meeting, unless you give me your solutions, unless you show up, I'm wasting my time. I'm operating in my own strength. Holy Spirit, would you do the work in me that I cannot do on my own? And then it's all predicated on surrender. Day by day, surrender. A yielding to God that he is God and I am not. These are the seven paths of sanctification, if you will. There are others. This is just one model, one way to communicate that if any one of these lacks for any period of time, again, we will be stunted in our sanctification as disciples. At best, at worst, we will fall away entirely. If we are in relationships, we're surrendering, but we're never renewing our minds with Scripture. Or we are renewing our minds with Scripture, but our habits, our practices still are not commensurate with the ways of Jesus, and so on and so forth. May we be holistic in our formation process. So here are your lunch discussion questions. Would those closest to me say that I am more of heaven's culture or more like the world around me? If we were to ask your spouse, your kids, your loved ones, friends, coworkers, the, the people on the road at the same time as you, how would they characterize your life? Are we more of heaven or more of the world? Now, on any given day, all of us could answer both ways. So, of those seven paths to sanctification, you can't eat the whole sausage in one bite, so take a bite this week. What is one point of growth this week? Maybe it's waking up tomorrow and just surrendering, practically going through your life and surrendering to God. God, I surrender my finances to you, our family and future to you, this business deal that I just can't quite strong arm uh, into a contract. I surrender my grades and my future profession, future spouse to you, so on and so forth. Maybe it's renewing our minds and it's time to open up the Bible again for yourself and not depend on others to do that formative process for you. Or maybe it's picking up a discipline, a habit of fasting or consistent prayer or getting back into community even though you were burned so badly in the past. What's one step that you can take this week? So I talked about how my vision has gotten narrower and narrower and I've found for us that has been intentional. God has had a purpose and a process that he is taking us through. And it made me think of, I heard a pastor say this one time that in uh, in my 20s, I sought to change the world. In my 30s, I sought to change my city. In my 40s, I sought to change my family. And in my 50s, I sought to change my spouse. And it wasn't until my 60s I finally realized that I am the one who needs to change. And in my transformation, now I have the ability to influence my family, my city, the nation, and the nations of the world. May the finger be pointed inward today. May we participate in Jesus' mission of holiness, that we would reflect the Father in everything that we do to everyone whom we are around. Would you stand with me as we pray together? We started this last week. We're just doing this for these three weeks. We're going to pray an ancient prayer together as we start our response time. This comes from the late first centuries, from the Didache. And the early church took this from John 17, from Jesus' prayer. So I'd ask for you to pray this with me out loud. 
We give you thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have made to dwell in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be glory forever. Remember your church, Lord, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love. Gather the church, the one that has been sanctified from the four winds into your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Amen. If our prayer teams would come down front. As part of our response today, um, as I was processing this message with my wife, she says, she said, present them with the challenge, then present them with the cross. <laughs> because ultimately, we can't rise to the challenge. We need Jesus. And you got a communion packet when you walked in. If you didn't, you can slip back in one of the entrances. You can get a little communion packet. And we're going to respond by taking communion together. Communion representing the broken body of Jesus. He knew that in our flesh, he knew that on the heels of this prayer in John 17, that we would not be able to do this on our own. So he was willingly arrested, mocked, spat upon, beaten, nailed to a Roman instrument of torture and execution so that that very sin that brought about the fall could be reversed and now we could be filled with the Holy Spirit, redeemed and reconnected to the Father. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then this is your invitation to come to Jesus We'd ask you not to take communion, but to talk to a friend or come down and talk to a, a trusted friend about your desire to follow Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then the invitation you saw in the middle of that triangle is one of surrender again today. And in taking communion, we're saying, God, I surrender to you. I surrender to your way. So here in just a moment, the band is gonna play one last song. And the way I'd like for us to do this is if you came with somebody, I'd like for you to take this together as a family or as a group of friends. If you're more comfortable doing that on your own, that's fine. But communion means not only communion with the Father, but communion with one another. And we do so by taking communion together. And just pray, pray for the grace to surrender every area of our lives to Jesus. So I'll pray and then you respond by taking communion together. If you have any needs at all, come down after you take communion. Let our prayer teams pray with you. But Father, we exalt you. We respond to your invitation to be holy, to be set apart. And we, we confess our inability to do so on our own. We recognize your sacrifice. We recognize your bloodshed and your body broken, represented in the, the wine and the bread, the juice and the bread. And as we take this, we surrender to you again in Jesus' name. And take that 